Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. There's one thing you men will be able to say when this war is over and you get back home. 30 years from now, when you are sitting by your fireside with your grandson on your knee and he asks, what did you do in the Great World War II? You won't have to cough and say, well, your granddaddy shoveled shit in Louisiana. No, sir. You can look him straight in the eye and say, son, your granddaddy rode with the great third army and a son of a goddamn bitch named George Patton. All right, you sons of bitches. You know how I feel. I'll be proud to lead you wonderful guys in battle anytime, anywhere. That's all. Tom, that was George C. Scott as uh, General Patton. Um, and George Patton, the great US general in World War II, he's commonly remembered, isn't he, as one of these sort of titanic leaders, these larger-than-life commanders who, through the force of their personality, and indeed their stirring rhetoric, as beautifully rendered in that impersonation, they, they roused their men, they dragged their men through the, the hell of battle to victory and you and i have only just been talking about another great commander in horatio nelson um so are you a great believer tom in individual leaders in history going you know think back to the romans and do you think they matter well i think it depends um, oh god what, what an evasive note on which to start Shocking. well no but there are two different styles of war aren't there there's the style of war that privileges dash um and yeah. celerity and uh tactical acumen and all that kind of stuff and then there's a style of war that um privileges the grind the heft the uh, remorselessness so i'm thinking of I'm comparing alexander and caesar you know which okay. is a contest that we have that already discussed when we do a public events so, we're asked that all, all the, the time. time so i would say that Alexander obviously had um, he had his his phalanx and he had his cavalry and that was very well honed. But I would say that it was, you know, his conquest of the Persian Empire wouldn't have happened without Alexander. Whereas yeah. the Romans, I think, were always going to conquer Gaul because that's the way the the legions functioned. It's the institutional machinery, and, and so that's why. And that that particularly became the case once Augustus had established um, uh, the legionary system. These, this kind of essentially professional army, which I think is why after the age of Caesar, there are no kind of box office Roman generals that people remember. Because they don't need them. Because they don't need them. Yeah. Um, and so this is prompted by the publication of a brilliant new book called Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War by Al Murray, co-host of We Have Ways, our, our sister podcast. And I, I was reading it and I thought – you know, coming off the back of our, our um, episodes on uh, Trafalgar, Nelson yeah. is a titanic figure. Everyone in Britain has heard of Nelson, even if you know nothing about history. And Al has written a, a series of biographies of commanders in the uh, in the Second World War. 
And I would say the only one I really know anything about is Montgomery. There are 10 of them. And so Patton is included. I don't really know anything about Patton. Just lots of shouting, I think, Tom. But I don't, that's but I, basically my impression of Patton. <laughs> Your impression of Patton um, was, of course, of George C. E. Scott. He famously had a high-pitched voice, so it would be more like, you sons of bitches. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you, to be brutally honest, I've, ne- I've never actually seen their film. So that was just, it was the impression of a poster. So, Dominic, <laughs> what, so what I learned from it is that, that um, Patton had a voice like a Neanderthal. You goddamn son of a bitch! (laughs) (laughs) That's how he spoke. Hmm. So you got it very wrong. (laughs) uh, uh, Let's let's ask the big question right at the outset. Do commanders matter at all? Oh, um, I think they absolutely do. And and I think your example of Nelson speaks to, uh, in the end, what a great commander can do, which is that he, he'll, be, he'll inherit a system. He'll be gifted a mechanism for, for waging war. And then it's his ability to sort of is envitalize a word, but to take hold of it and get it to work as, as efficiently as it possibly can. And, and when you, you talk about, um, uh, you know, Monty being the only chap you've ever heard of out of this bag of people, Tom. That's, that's not quite true. It's not quite true, but, but it's, it's the only one that I would... Underst- it is also completely understandable. And, and Monty's sort of representative of this. One of the things I think that happens culturally after the Second World War is we sort of go, God, that was horrible. And we shove it aside and try not to remember it as a society. or try to ditch certainly the people that made us do terrible things to win the war. And Mo- Monty's peculiar in that he stands out as a figure that is remembered, but is also vilified. And I think... For that, for that reason, that's sort of his function after the war. Is he becomes a sort of lightning rod for how objectionable the war was an, as an experience for a c- civilian population because he's, he's a citizen commander. But morale was his central thing. The one thing he wanted to um, concentrate on when he took over 8th Army in August of 1942 was fixing the morale. So taking the machine and getting it to function properly by grabbing people and improving their attitude to how they were going to go about fighting. That's his thing. That's his gift. In the way that Nelson, you know, would cause hazards everywhere he went, that was what Monty was going for. But also, Al, I learned from your book, uh, he was concerned to sort out um, venereal disease. Uh, to the point of obsession. <laughs> Al, I mean, so, let's be frank. So, so he, 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 he writes this memo in which he talks about a man who has a woman in a beetroot field. Yes. I mean... What's the thing about beetroots? The root vegetables, what's going on there? Well, one of the things about Montgomery is he actually has, when you start to read read him, I think are prepared to take him with a little bit of a pinch of salt rather than take him all appallingly seriously what a ghastly fellow he is. He's this strangely, he has this strangely impish sense of humour. And I think that's in that memo. This whole incident, which I opened the book with, is is really to try and sort of prod at the idea that the, the, the British army in 1939, 1940, like the British political establishment, has got itself in, into a war it's not particularly serious about. And uh, it thinks will probably fizzle out without having to do any fighting. And Monty writes to his division. He's, he's in charge of the 3rd Infantry Division. And he writes to his divisional officers saying, you know, our lads, because it's the phony war and they've got no kit to exercise and train with properly. And they're in France. <laughs> La Belle France. And they're in France and they're, well, and their fathers were in France. It's the other big, the other thing to remember. And I'm sure some of the fathers have taken the lads to one side and said, told them what a fantastic time they had with the locals. Um, and so he's worried about, you know, the sexual health of his men. And this is the age of syphilis, after all. This is pre, pre-antibiotic pre cure for syphilis. So this is, a, this is actually terribly serious. But 
of course, Monty, in his own in his own style, writes a sort of uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I, I don't know. I mean, by modern standards, an entirely anodyne memo, yeah. but, but for yeah. the time, a little bit cheeky. Well, so and the, and the response is to Alan Brooke, who's his commander, worded in such obscene language that both the C of E and RC senior chaplains complained to the adjutant general. <laughs> yep, and the adjutant general will, you know, he he controls your career. Um, he'll fire you if he thinks you're not if you're not fitting in. And the thing about Monty is he has had a career where, because he regards himself as a professional soldier in a in the interwar era, where people are quite determined not to do any professional soldiering, and certainly not, you know, European. Uh, I hate the word war fighting that's current, but, but they're not interested in fighting a war in Europe. Certainly, mm. they've no appetite for it. And he's talk. He wants to talk about that. He wants to discuss how you might do that. So he's he's very detroit during the interwar years in in the various messes he's in. You know that he that he finds himself in. But basically, by 1939, they've got themselves this guy who's super efficient. He's excellent at his job. He's open to ideas, and, and he's also got a sort of my way or the highway attitude. And he comes close to being fired for caring about the health of his men, which just strikes me as, you know, preposterous. Essentially. The phrase is horizontal refreshment. That's right. It? That's, um, <laughs> that alarms his superiors. But anyway, Al, let's pull back the camera a bit. Yes, sorry. And talk, and talk in a sort of, uh, before we sort of disappear down lots of mm. Monty-shaped rabbit holes. Yeah. So, so to be a, a general, to be a commander... Yeah. In the Second World War in the 1940s. So the, the examples that Tom and I talked about right at the beginning, Nelson, mm. Alexander, Julius Caesar, these are all people who have, who, who are taking enormous physical risks. Yes. And who are in, you know, Nelson's case, he's, uh, he's killed. Alexander's, you know, he will lead the cavalry. He will charge ahead, all that sort of thing. Then the 1940s, being a general is presumably completely different from being a military commander at most previous points in history, maybe not the Duke of Wellington, but yeah. before that. So these are people who are managing. So they have to be bureaucratic managers as well as kind of football managers, tacticians, yeah. all these kinds of things. Is that, yes, is that I'm, fair? I mean, the, yes, absolutely. The, the stuff going over their desk, one of the real things they have to really be good at is running a staff. Is having a, a staff that, because we've moved away from, you know, Wellington sort of, sucking his teeth on a battlefield and calculating how fast the formations will all arrive in the same place and all that stuff. You know, he knows how fast his light infantry can make their way across certain terrain and what his light cavalry can do and his heavy cavalry can do. And he's, he's sort of running the numbers in his head as to where we've come away from there and you have a staff. So it's about having a good chief of staff. So it's about having good people that you can manage. Is as crucial to it as anything else. Monty's chief of staff, Freddie de Gangar, was a brilliant man at managing his sort of uh, mercurial general but so it's about running a staff it's about being recognizable to your men becomes a very very big part of second world, world war generalship because you're entering the age of you know proper mass media um, and projecting an image becomes incredibly important and of course you know we talked about Patton. the reason you were in doing an impression of a poster i think tells you how successful Patton was in delivering his image to people that you know what right. he looks like you know yeah. and he you know he's he wants to be a sort of an american hannibal he he wanted you to think of him as, as in an iconic sense. So you've got, you've got lots of plates to spin. All of the British generals were First World War people or imperial people, so will have experienced physical danger and bravery was a part of who they were. You know, Montgomery was shot through the lung on, on a battlefield in night 15 and left for dead overnight and all that and sort of stuff. Who's the one who had the VC? 
Oh, that's Freiburg. Yes, yeah, Freiburg. Freiburg. Yeah, who's, who's known as the Salamander. Churchill calls him the Salamander, and I'm not going to wade in with a Churchill impression on this podcast because that turf <laughs> is firmly stamped out. Um, um, but he he is wounded scores of times in the First World War at Gallipoli, swims ashore and puts fake f- naked. Um, f- you say naked? Yes. yes. Well, yeah. I mean, rather than be dragged down by your tunic, I suppose you'd be mental to be swimming around in like all your kit, Tom. I would. I would not go naked. I, I <laughs> I would insist on wearing full kit. Decorum, uh, Nelsonian decorum. Uh, I'm a British officer. I die with my uniform on. <laughs> but yes, he was phenomenally brave at Freiburg. And he's wounded again in the Second World War during the First Battle of Alamein. Does that give him a status? I mean, does that give him an authority? It gives him a status the, and it gives him an authority. But where the crossover between being phenomenally brave under fire and actually being able to run a battle. Well, yes, because you say he was thick. <laughs> Well, I, I, I may be paraphrasing. He wasn't very clever, I think you say, or something. Well, I, I think this is the problem is I've tried to handle that in a nuanced and subtle way. But, um, <laughs> his, okay. his handling at the Battle of, of the Battle of Crete, although it's pretty woeful because he knows what's going to happen. So just tell us about the Battle of Crete for those who may know nothing about it. So for those who know nothing about the Battle of Crete, the Battle of, the Battle of Crete falls into the, you know, the, the first three years of the Second World War until really August of 1942. Uh, for the British, and, and on We Have Ways of Making You Talk, we call them the Duke Forces because it's Dominions, UK and Empire because we wanted a handy acronym. You're an inclusive podcast. No, no, no. We're being imperial, Dom. <laughs> okay, okay, fine. Okay. Oh, that's a very different story. <laughs> it's a very different kind of inclusion. <laughs> Joseph Chamberlain's idea of inclusion. <laughs> well, there you go. Exactly. So so the absolute ignominy of what happens in France in 1940 is then followed by – there's a, a, a great victory against the Italians in late 1940, Operation Compass – when uh, uh, General O'Connor rounds up the Italians, hundreds of thousands of Italians are captured. And that goes terribly well. And then the British get involved in, in Greece, and it goes terribly, terribly wrong. And as they're scuttling out of Greece, come M- M- May 1941, Crete is the last bit of Greece left. Churchill has tangled himself up in the idea that you need to defend Greece because it's a monarchy, because it's where democracy came from. Uh, because they are our sole noble ally left on the continent of Europe, and sort of Chichilian, Chichilian reasons. The army goes, oh, Christ, all right, um, and is then soundly defeated again. And so when you come to Crete, Crete's the last bit left between, you know, the continent of Europe and the continent of Africa that, that that's up for grabs, basically. And the Germans decide, and this is, you know, with Barbarossa very firmly in their mind in, for June, July that year, the Germans decide that what they're going to do is, is capture Crete. And there's a, a an assemblage of Duke forces on Crete. So it's not really de- who Freiburg, this uh, Kiwi general has on Crete, isn't, they're not really designed to defend the island, but there's tons of them. And they crack the Luftwaffe ciphers because the Luftwaffe are very lax at discipline because they send weather forecasts every day and all that sort of stuff. So you get, you get the same stuff over and over again, which is what code breakers want. And they pop open the Luftwaffe cipher and they know that the Germans are planning to capture Crete using parachute soldiers, Falschimjäger. They're going to land on Crete. Here's where they're going to do it. Here's how they're going to do it. And the British had made a great study of what the Germans had done in 1940 with their parachutists, which is to capture an airfield and reinforce. So they know exactly what's going to happen. They know exactly what's going, when it's going to happen. They have the timetable. They have the objectives. They know everything about what's going to happen. Freiburg knows everything about what's going to happen. But he doesn't really grip how he deals with the threat. He also is desperate to protect that he uh, has ultra clearance and that he knows that he has, that he's been forewarned. So he, do, he sort of doesn't, he doesn't make a big thing of defending the airfields, although that's 
obviously what you would do because he doesn't want to give away that they know basically yeah exactly it's, it's well although that's that, that's an that's one of the arguments that sort of defends him a little let's let the germans win this one so they don't know we've broken their <laughs> well, code exactly, well, exactly exactly and the thing is is people do get themselves in tangles around the enigma story because it's it's one of the compelling second world war stories that emerged a lot later that that sort of clean doesn't involve doesn't involve firebombing cities or you know clever boffins in a vicarage figuring out um, the, the fiendish German code is it sits more comfortably with a more contemporary sensibility. And so yeah. you look at the enigma and you think, oh, well, you know, that code's obviously, that's what's going on there. They're protecting it. But it may be that actually he just simply mishandled things because he wasn't up to it. He also did inherit, however, like I said earlier, a sort of ragtag thing. Their radios weren't up to scratch and their internal communications didn't really work. And they didn't have very much artillery, but, but what you do, if you've got an airfield, and you've got a hill overlooking it is you don't leave the hill overlooking it. It's, um, fairly straightforward and i you know i'm a comedian and i can tell that so this <laughs> thing about this thing about him mishandling it so mm. the the perception i would say among people i mean i know your listeners on the we yes. have ways podcast uh, know everything about the second world war but the perception among those of us who don't know everything about it uh, and you'll probably think this is a, an absolutely ludicrous stereotype but i would guess this is what most people think is that the british generals certainly at the beginning of the war were sort of slightly feckless foppish massive trousers you know out of their depth amateurs and i guess the perception especially among our overseas listeners would also be then the americans come in and they've got kind of square heads and they are unbelievably ruthless and hard cigars modern yeah yeah they smoke cigars and the british wore jumpers and smoked pipes thin moustaches I'm guessing this is a preposterous and indeed <laughs> utterly inaccurate. But but is there an element of truth in it? Yeah, there's a, there is. There's definitely a grain of there's definitely a grain of truth in the in the second half of that. That the Americans very self consciously create a brand new army, um, and embrace it in the sort of spirit of New Deal modernity. And um, the, the, it, it's no coincidence that the American army that emerges in thirty nine forty forty one. Is is the product of the Rooseveltian New Deal? It's it's fascinating for that. Their uniform. Um, James always goes on and on about how their uniforms are. Their uniforms are designed to be democratic and look like work clothes, and not not make you look like a soldier. And and the, the Americans are very much going for this thing that it it is a modern army, but that's where they've got to culturally. It's it it's sort of you know the armies as armies as expressions of their culture uh, um, of the cultures that produce them if you yeah. you know you want to know what a society's like have a look at its army it'll it's sort of there immediately and the americans very much do fall into this they bring modernity they bring a sort of they bring a sort of tyro efficiency to it there's lots of industrialists you know ma- mass production people and car manufacturers advising roosevelt on how to run his war economy and therefore how to run his operation, you know, th- then that feeds into how they run their operational level and then the, you know, strategic and tactical. But what the Americans are really, really good at is learning. They, they learn really, really fast and they're completely open to ideas in a way that perhaps British are not quite so good at. But Al, I, I know from listening to We Have Ways, I know yes. from listening to my brother who talks about it a great deal, Yes, that actually the British were very, very good at killing people on an industrial level. Oh, yeah. That... That in fact the idea that they were all kind of tweedy and effectual pipe smokers is incredibly wrong, yeah. and that um, they are you know they win the Battle of the Atlantic and yeah. they you know they they inflict untold carnage on the cities of Germany, and that actually isn't this actually one of the reasons why perhaps the profile of, of generals in the army is so low is that actually the key campaigns in the war are being fought in the air 
and on the sea. And it's on such a kind of level that there isn't really much space for the kind of Nelsonian figure, the individual commander, because it's all about munitions and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and yet, when you do get an electrifying figure, he's he's able to grasp the reins and turn things around. And uh, the, I, I, completely, you know, this is the Phillips Place and O'Brien's big war sort of theory that basically the Allies, the Allies win the Second World War at land and it's in the air. The Allies win the Second World War in the air and at sea. And the land battles are sort of incidental and you know and this, this, this he, he runs an economic argument because he's an economist economic historian he says well basically if you look at for instance tank production the the, the, the percentage of german uh, industrial production that goes to tanks is five percent yet we think of the great land war in the on the eastern front as the as the climactic place where the the blood is spilled and the battle occurs but he says if this is a war of factories then actually the germans aren't spending much of their uh, their industrial output on tanks they're spending 45 percent on aircraft to try and defend them th- their skies to defend their factories that's where they're under pressure so that's the bit of the war effort that's working but but in the end boots on the ground are the that the, the only you know stalin knew this you had to have you had to have red army soldiers in berlin to end the thing so to just press you on that because uh, I was going to ask about yeah. Phillips O'Brien's argument. Yeah. So his book, I can't remember if it's called How the Allies Won or Why They Won or, or yeah. something yeah, like yeah. that. And he basically starts that book by saying, you know, the fighting is neither here nor there. The battles don't really matter. Yeah. What matters is exactly as you're saying, kind of the graphs of, you know, shell production or well, you, whatever. Al, you, you quote Stalin, don't you? This is a war of engines. Yeah. It is impossible to have too many of them. And the side having the largest number of engines is bound to win. Yeah, I mean, fine. could you not argue that in some, could you not, if I was being really brutal, could I not say this is a bit like arguing that football managers matter in the grand scheme of things? Because obviously a given manager will change the, the fortunes of a team. But in the grand scheme of things, i.e. over a 10-year period, it's actually how much you pay the players. It's actually your budget that will affect how many trophies you win. It's the quality of the kleptocratic autocrat in the background, the oligarch. (laughs) Do the commanders and do the battles, I mean, persuade me that they're the land battles, that a given land battle or a given land campaign and the given commander makes a difference to the course of the war. Yeah, I I think I can do that for you. I mean, after there's the, it's 1942 in the desert that really is the, the, the sort of, where everything goes wrong and then everything goes right. And, and you know, it's the sort of thing in – James and I are quite fond of the sort of uh, uh, acrid stench of cordite-type cliches that you get in the Second World War. We are, we are no strangers to cliches on the rest of history. Dominic has literally used the phrase clouds of war on this uh, yeah, podcast. No, I, before, yes, the gathering, so. the, yes, the gathering storm clouds <laughs> the gathering of war. gathering storm. I mean, it's still there, isn't it? The woodpecker knock-knock of the Bren gun and all that. Um, the 1942 is the Janus-faced year of fortune for the Allies because you have this – absolutely diabolical situation in May 1942, the Gazala line battle where Tobruk falls on uh, on Midsummer's Day, June the 21st, and absolutely everything that can go wrong is going wrong for the British. And yes, in the end, their material preponderance will out. But you've still got, I mean, I think, I don't think this is even a great man theory of history. This is a sort of reasonably useful man theory. A man theory of history. You know, um, because when change comes at the top in North Africa in 1942, when Alexander, um, or the, when Orkin is fired, because he's out of ideas and he's exhausted, and he's been defeated, when he's fired and he brings in Montgomery as this sort of emissary on earth, because Alex is this sort of rather grand, terribly experienced guards officer, who is a very beguiling, smooth chap, British establishment chap, and then Monty's this sort of annoying, 
Irish bishop's son. You know, the, 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 you know, you've got all the all the fruits of the British establishment present. I mean, and fruits is probably the right word. <laughs> they, they, um, they're the right, you know, they do have an effect. The, the fact is, is Monty's, Monty's the sub anyway, because there's, there's another chap, Strafer Gott, who gets the job of running Eighth Army, who shot down the day he gets the job and is killed because the Germans think, think it's Churchill in his aeroplane. Is one version of events. Um, that he's killed. So Monty's brought in as a sort of sub and got, got was exhausted, wasn't up to the job, was part of the old establishment in, in Eighth Army and was, but didn't want the gig either. So I think he would have made a different difference. He would not have had the, he would not have had the electrifying effect that, um, Montgomery working with Alexander, um, had in the desert in 1942. And I really do, I really, really do think that individuals are still, are doing that are able to make that difference. You know, because one of the things about, for instance, cracking the Enigma secret is there's, there's one argument, oh, it took years off the Second World War. Well, how on earth do we quantify that? I mean, maybe Montgomery shaved a fortnight off the thing. I don't know. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but Because after all, Phillips would argue it's going to end somehow anyway with an allied victory of one, one shape or form and the fighting is incidental. But part of the point of my book is the fighting still has to happen. And you still have to persuade someone to fix a bayonet, put a round up the spout, take their rifle off safety and go and kill people. You still have to persuade them to do that. Yeah. And how do you do that? That's my question. You know, how if you were parachuted in, <laughs> I mean, it's, impl- it's an implausible scenario, it's but impl- let's run with it. <laughs> yes. how, how do you, as a general, persuade, you know, young men... Well, Spike Milligan. How do you persuade Spike Milligan? Because you begin with him, don't you? Yes. Um, famous comic... Uh, in the fifties and sixties, who who wrote a brilliant series of books about what it was like to be a not very enthusiastic fighter in these wars. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, he's not not a not a keen gunner. I mean, in, in, in what it comes down to, Dominic, I think is if men have a sense that they're being looked after by uh, in the British Army, certainly that, that the army develops a, 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 the notion that what that what the men need is a sense that, that they're cared about a sense that they aren't spending their lives cheaply. And you, you engender that by training them well, so they think at least they've got confidence in their officers, they've got confidence in the way they're going to go about doing battle. Um, their mail comes on time. And then, you know, and then you enter the quasi-political uh, uh, thing where until the beverage report comes along, there is a, a morale malaise within the British Army because people don't really know what they're fighting for. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship about this lately, about where, where the beverage report fits into how the army mobilised its men. Uh, because after all, you know, there's the British Army in 1939, the BEF, which is the old professional army plus some territorials. That army gets routed. Then there's an army, that, a professional army in the desert in 1940, because Churchill sends soldiers during the invasion scare, which I think indicates actually how seriously he takes the invasion scare. He sends them to Africa, North Africa. Then there's, then there's the army that's gathered in the meantime. And first army goes to Tunisia, which is the army Spike Milligan's part of, and then spends sort of essentially fights the Mediterranean. And then there's the army that fights in Normandy with incidental stuff going on in Burma where, where the British con- contribution is actually smaller than, than it appears. But basically the, there are all these armies running at once. And by the middle of the war, the British army just knows it's got to, it's got to offer as well as good training, as well as good food. And, you know, Milligan's books are interesting because he never goes hungry. The entire time he's in, in the army, even mm. when they're fighting, um, proper full-on artillery engagements, which is what, what, what he used to do. And he'd go forward and into the forward observation uh, post and he was a signaller. So he really saw action up close, but he never, ever goes hungry. And he never goes out without his fags and he never goes without his friends. And so there's this is sort of, this is sort of mosaic of things that persuade people that, that they want 
that they want to fight. But you need the complete mosaic. And the minute the bit different parts of the picture fall away, motivation crumbles and fades. And and, and the, the reason the book's about officers is because it's down to the officers to make sure the men feel like it's worth doing. It is amazing how this dovetails with what we were d- talking about, Nelson, and his campaigns, you know, yeah. to, to get to get the men on the ships. Yeah. Healthy, well-fed, and feeling happy. And Nelson is loved because he loves his men and they, they, they know it. Okay, I think we should take a break here. And when we come back, you mentioned Burma. Perhaps yes. we could talk about General Slim, who <laughs> um, who is one of the, one of the Second World War generals who has a statue outside the Ministry of Defence on Whitehall. So he must be a top general. So maybe we could we could talk about him <laughs> and definitely uh, a top general and some of your others. So uh, don't go. We're going to be talking about top generals when we come back. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I've got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are with Al Murray, the author of Command, How the Allies Learned to Win the Second World War. And Al, you give us these wonderful pen portraits of these different generals. And Tom suggested we do, we focus in on Bill Slim. And I think that's a brilliant choice. Tom and I did a podcast about statues yes. in Whitehall. And we, we had a little chat, didn't we, about Slim. And we said... In that chat, we said that we knew that you and Tom's brother James on your podcast have strong views about uh, General Slim, who's probably not really terribly well known to most people who are not Second World War aficionados. So, A, tell us who he was, and B, give us your verdict on the great man. Well, B- Bill Slim is the chap who wins the, the war for the British Empire and that's really key for for the british empire in burma um uh the burmese battlefield is so gigantic um in in the retreat in 1942 when uh the, the british are caught completely with their trousers down by the japanese have absolutely no answers to whether the japanese are going to fight they retreat a thousand miles so they retreat you know a, a london to moscow sort of distance you know the the, the scale of this place is, is gigantic through, through jungle through jungle um through uh, uh, and on on mud tracks and with a Japanese enemy that, that prizes mobility and does this thing of, of getting around, getting around behind you and cutting you off so that they can steal your supplies because they haven't got any of their own. So, and there's a terrible disaster on the, on the Sitang River. The Sitang River Bridge is blown while half of um, one of the big British formations is on the wrong side of the river. It, it's an absolutely disastrous, chaotic campaign. So, so the scale of defeat in Bur- Burma, and you know, this is all, uh, at the same time as Singapore's going horribly wrong as well. In the East, the British have the Indian Army at their disposal, but that's run by British officers. And Bill Slim is, a, is an Indian Army lifer to the point where he's written some, some, some sort of sub-Kipling fiction um, about snake charmers and stuff. And, and you know, he's a, he's a Raj soldier, a, a, an Indian Army soldier. And the Indian Army is a shadow army to the British Army. It's run on, it, it, it gets the same budget, but the Indian Army, Indian government has to spend it. And it's a gendarmerie, really, and right. uh, and and its job is putting down tribesmen in you know dispute disputations areas, and they you know they 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 call the expeditions punitive expeditions when they go. So it's like I mean, Churchill and his Malacan field force kind of army, exactly, basically. exactly. And I think one of the one of the things about the Second World War is we see it as the sort of hop off point for the modern world, but actually in, it, within the army, there's an awful lot of of you know, uh, essentially 19th century start thinking still kicking around, especially imperially, especially in how you how you deal with the, the cookie tribe or whatever who've who've risen up against you in the Assam Hills. What you do is you go and burn their villages down. And it's all terrible uh, what goes on. But but Slim is Slim is um, he's a First World War veteran. He used to be a teacher. He's from the Midlands and he's so he's not a gentleman. He's a he's a player to use a cricketing analogy. And he he is the fellow who figures out how to win in Burma. And Burma's at the back of the queue um, in terms of resources, so they're not getting any of the snazzy tanks. 
Um, they're not getting any of the snazzy Spitfires. Uh, they get they get their Spitfires last, essentially, in terms of the the, the theatres the British are fighting in. So aren't able to enforce their superiority in, until quite late in the day. But Slim figures out how to run a an, a, an inclusive army, for want of a better way of putting it. You know, the, the, Indi- the Indian army is broken down into its different uh, constituent battalions and companies so that you you don't have a preponderance of any one ethnicity in, in a battalion. So, And this is legacy of the of the Indian rebellion. You don't want groupings who could rise up against you within the army. So you've got different ration scales per unit, so all the different dietary requirements. Um, it's a f- faintly Shoreditch, all this. Um, and... <laughs> And and different languages, and and you also have um, uh, you know Quit India going on. So we were talking in the first half about how the you know the beverage report comes into the into the deal for fighting soldiers in in the Indian Army. What comes into the deal is independence, and what what Slim need, knows he needs to do is create a as well as you know figure out how much armor he needs, how his supply lines work, how to integrate with air power. He needs to figure out that. What he's got to do is offer the, his Indian soldiers the fact if they fight this one and defeat the Japanese, who are a, a terrible imperial threat, then at the come out the other end of it, there will be independence. And Slim is party to that, that sort of, um, you know, is part of that creation of an understanding for, for you know, Indian soldiers, because they need educated men to be officers. And that's yeah. what, that's who, you know, and, and if you're an educated man, you tend to be, you, you're sympathetic to independence. It's the way it's crumbled. And Slim figures out how to beat the Japanese by bringing allied material preponderance to bear, which is the thing we talked about in the first half, that, you know, that's the thing that means you inevitably win. But you've yeah. still got to figure out how to get the Japanese to sort of dash themselves on the rocks of that preponderance. And he's very fortunate the Japanese tend not to change the way they do things, aren't particularly good at learning from their errors. And you end up with these extraordinary battles where the Japanese will put in a massed infantry attack sort of at the same time every day. And uh, they gather in the same place and they shout, we're coming to get you, Tommy. Um, uh, We'll see you in a minute. And so they get shelled remorselessly and killed. and, And he's able, Slim is able to bring the Japanese to waste themselves upon 14th Army, which is fascinating. Because you quote him, you quote him on this, you say, if the Japanese are allowed to hold the initiative, they're formidable. When we have it, they're confused and easy to kill. Yeah. Um, And that seems to be the essence of, in military terms, his achievement. Yes. So he seizes the initiative. Yes, he seizes the initiative and he, and, and, but has the, you know, has figured out the means to do so and has the means at his disposal in, in, you know, in terms of air power and stuff. Stuff. Is that, that's a technical well, <laughs> military term. Well, it's better than the, you know, the, 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 the French word materiel always gets wheeled out in yeah, military yeah, up to this point. And I kind of like, well, what, what, we, can we not just say material? Do we have to say material? You know, it's a sort of Napoleonic hangover. So stuff, stuff is the, the Anglo-Saxon yeah. word for this. But, but yes, he figures out how to, but you've got to learn how to coordinate the stuff, motivate your chaps to do it, and then get the enemy to do what you want. Although what's striking about Slim is he fights these sort of peculiar offensive defensive actions in 1944 uh, in Falakohima, really in India. He gets the Japanese to waste themselves on there. And then the next year in 1945, he takes it to them and fights this incredible mobile battle that's like um, like uh, the sort of thing a German panzer general would pride themselves on. He's sort of sweeping formations around the, the, the open bit of the Burmese countryside and runs, runs a sort of conventional, almost a sort of conventional European-style battle in the jungle, which is which is fascinating. So he's he's got the adaptability to, to do that. But Al, the other thing that really comes home in your chapter on him is that actually 
the, the Japanese are obviously a terrible, a terrifying enemy, but the real enemy, uh, you say, is disease. Yeah. And you have this in the jungle where mosquitoes, mites, flies, brackets, important mechanical carriers of intestinal diseases, lice, fleas, blood-sucking leeches, rats, chiggers, brackets, carriers of scrub typhus, centipedes, cockroaches, scorpions, poisonous snakes and crocodiles. And just for good measure, you say that elephants uh, occasionally crash into them as well. So that sense that, and maybe this is why Slim seems to be the um, the, the Second World War aficionado's you know, he's their, he's their man. Whereas most people haven't heard of him is that actually you have to be an aficionado to appreciate the full scale because really what he's fighting is bacteria and flies and mosquitoes yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He's running. He's, and in that sense, it's, it's very like an old, in, you know, an old imperial campaign, the sort of thing like when the French conquer Madagascar in the 1890s, or whatever, two thirds of them die malaria or something. It's, it's in that, it's in that sort of imp, it, it, imperial vein. I mean, the other thing Slim never has to deal with is the politics that, uh, that 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 emerges in the Northwest European theater where everything's close to home. He's not got Churchill breathing down his neck going, there are V2s falling on London. Could you hurry up and win this, please? He never has to deal with that. In fact, he's right at the end of the sort of command chain. And when he wins his big battles in 1944, Brooke and the chiefs of the Imperial General Staff don't really have a grasp on what he's uh, pulled off. They, they are, yeah. It isn't clear to them what he's been trying to do and, and how he's achieved it. He is the sort of military aficionados, and very often in the general's general, Slim gets wheeled out, but he never really has to deal with the with the very intense politics that comes in the last two years of the war in Europe. And he's fought, I think, incredibly fortunate in that respect, because he eyes down on what he's doing. So you've got somebody like Slim, who's obviously mm. conscious of the conditions, and who's performed this extraordinary task of retreating and then managing his army and stuff. Yeah. And we talked about Montgomery, Montgomery made himself a media personality. Montgomery knew how important it was to rebuild morale yep. in the desert and so on. And you were saying before the break about the, you know, how you rouse your men to fight and all that kind of thing. And thinking about, so your book is about the British and the Americans, but I'm thinking about yep. contrast with the Russians, for example. So the Russians, they, they don't appear to be terribly interested in kind of, you know, the morale of their men, it's well, fair to say. And, I mean, or am I being harsh? Because you get the impression, certainly, you know, I've read Anthony Beaver's books about Stalingrad yeah. or the Battle for Berlin, and you have a sense of these Russian generals just hurling enormous numbers of men into the kind of meat grinder, yeah, believing that the preponderance of human material will out as it were yeah. is that harsh i mean you because you haven't got the russians in the book and i wondered whether that was because their generals are, are perhaps less interesting because they're well, basically just, is, well I, I think they are interesting but i'm interested what i'll well no i think it's well it's because it's i i find it's you know it, uh, we're into riddle inside an enigma or whatever it is territory um the, the main difference though that the russians have for motivating uh their men as opposed to british and americans is the nazis are in Russia, yeah, and they've turned up and they've delivered. They've delivered red hot Nazism in their area, and and you know that you don't need to explain to people what you're fighting that war for. That, and that's the, the tremendous advantage yeah. that the Soviet state has uh, in 1941, 94. You know, for the rest of the war, is that it, it's perfectly clear why you have to why you have to defeat Nazism, and the reason is Nazism. The Nazis showing up in. Belarus and Ukraine and all those places. The British ha and, the, and the Germans, in a way, have a, a similar problem with the British. Is, is that how do you actually mo motivate to fight against the British? And the area bombing that we touched on earlier, the RAF bomber commands efforts, fire bombing Hamburg, is a fantastic way of motivating German land. Yeah, 
um, uh, to fight the British. And in the same way that Coventry is a fantastic way to motivate Tommies. Um, you know, the, 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 those bigger pictures of what the strategic campaign is doing motivate people on the ground. But the, the Russians have this thing that's the actual presence of the German army and, and right. reprisal and everything. And also, you know, it, we're, we're culturally apples and oranges, aren't we? The, 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 the British and American armies are, are citizen armies with voters in them who have a general election. The British have a general election coming uh, at the end of this war. The Americans have one during it. The, the Russian Soviet government has a date with history, doesn't it, with a capital H, rather than um, rather than anything else. And so it, it's been motivating the, its people along those lines anyway. Uh, so I think, I mean, they, and they, you know, the, the culture within the Soviet Union of, you know, g- generals, if they go and see Stalin and they aren't, they haven't got high enough casualty rate, you're accused of not trying. Yeah. So there's, th- th- you've got that going on too, that the blood, the spillage of blood is part of how you, d- is actually how part of how you do it. Whereas the Allies have got this steel, not flesh philosophy, where what you're trying to do is use the technology, not expend people. And the British are very sensitive to this idea. You don't want to lose a million people again, because you've got factories to fill. You've got an economy to save after the war and all that sort and, of stuff. And so uh, would you say that um, the, I, I mean, I guess the most famous Second World War general is Rommel, who's, <laughs> yes. who's German. Um, yes, of course. <laughs> so w- would you would you say the fact that, that r- say, relative to Rommel, um, the, the fact That's that the British and the Americans don't have in- incredibly famous and glamorous generals is perhaps a reflection of the essentially democratic culture that has produced these armies. Yes, but- I think so. I think it's healthy that we don't know who these people are. I think that we don't have, that we don't, you know, Nelson on his column is, is sort of, that's that's as as high as it'll ever go, this thing. I sort of, the, the, the yeah. adulation of military commanders. And I think that's, that's really, healthy. really healthy. I mean, as I said uh, uh, earlier on, you know, part of what happens to Montgomery after the war is, and Bomber Harris in particular, you know, that these people are regarded with revulsion because look at what we had to do to win. And you get yeah. you use those people to represent that, and then you can you can hang it all on them and, and not on ourselves for you know. I, Rommel, I mean, Rommel is Rommel is a fascinating case in point because he's actually kind of not that. He's got great dash and great verve, but he's terrible at the, considering his logistic position. He's terrible at knowing when to stop and uh, lick his wounds and sort himself out, and that's really partly what gets him defeated in 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 the desert. But he seems like a kind of chivalrous opponent, doesn't he? And so perhaps that's why he's he's famous, is that it enables the British to feel that they're back in some kind of tournament. It's also, some... But it's also, yes, but it's also that thing. I mean, in that phase of the war, after all, in the, in the desert, there's no civilians around. So you're not smashing up people's homes. You're just fighting each other. And so you can you can tell yourself it's a clean war. It's like a naval war or something. But Wellington, when he was asked who the, you know, the greatest general in, in the world had ever been was Napoleon. And he said that because he defeated Napoleon. You know. <laughs> exactly yeah. so rommel, rommel rommel being brilliant is all very well but we defeated rommel yeah that's yeah, of course, of course. Quite so al the americans because we started yes. with Patton. so you've got omar bradley you've got yeah. Patton. is who's the, is Patton the best Patton's the most famous is he the best well he is a brilliant brilliant soldier and he's such a peculiar man because he he Really wants to be the American Hannibal. He is absolutely what lose. <laughs> well, anyway, well, there you go. See, but then, then again, you see, this is the thing. This is the thing, Tom. Is is that you, you know when when people pick and choose generals from history, they don't. You know, Napoleon's a case in point. Napoleon does in the end lose, doesn't he? I yeah. mean, for all why don't they pick well Wellington? Madness. Well, it's, it's craziness. But then you know, it's the sort of it's that kind of it's the heats that 
don't count the finals what matters sort of thing isn't yeah, it? You know? yeah what i love about or i'm fascinated about Patton is he, is he got off reservation you know as a, as a historical topic things escape you know he, he, he's escaped military history he's escaped sort of serious academic history he's escaped he's present and, and buzzed off into the into the cultural world via you know partly because he died so sort of absented himself yeah so you say he's that he's he's um he's the uh the jim morrison or Jimi hendrix of american generals yeah i think so. i really do think that <laughs> yeah you know and he, he he killed before he did anything rubbish you know the, the records hendrix would have made in the 80s would have been horrible so he, he he's sort of he he and he occupies a cultural space because there's a film about him that's part of america you know trying to lay down its martial culture during the vietnam war you know, and all that. So he he's off reservation. That's what's so interesting about him. I don't think he's the best or the worst. I think he's he's fascinating for this position. But that largely exists because of the work he put into burnishing his self-image and being really quite peculiar uh, uh, amongst his contemporaries. So the contrast will be Omar Bradley, who you call yeah. the GI general. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would guess... Uh, with an exception of some of our American listeners who are really interested in military history, the vast majority of people listening to this podcast can probably tell you us nothing about Omar Bradley. Yeah. Many of them will literally never have heard those words. Yep. So tell us who he was. Character from The Wire, he sounds like. Yeah, he well, he commanded, the, uh, Omar Bradley commanded the, the US forces in, you know, on land in Northwest Europe uh, when, when the Normandy invasion came. I think his army was something like one and a half, two million people, you know, like. So is he in charge of Leclerc, the the free French? I think, yes, Leclerc did come under him. But, you know, he ran D-Day. It's it's Omaha Beach is, although there's another podcast for dismantling um, mythos. But Omaha Beach was, you know, part of his responsibility. Omaha, Omaha Beach, Utah Beach, the American landings are Bradley, the American component. The American army was was tiny in between the wars. It's a sort of think tank, really, and tasked with all sorts of sort of extracurricular things, like the uh, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, which is a you know New Deal project for doing up the landscape, build, building national parks and stuff. A bit like the Arbeitsdienst, but we try not to dwell on that. Or a sort of Soviet work camp, which, which was to, if you're an American left, American right, that's how you characterize it. But Bradley had come through that and was one of Marshall's men, George Marshall's men. And George Marshall was put in charge of the you know, uh, the, it was made chief of staff in uh, September, so September for the first, nineteen thirty-nine. So he's brought in basically to invigorate the army because Roosevelt sees the gathering storm clouds of war gathering <laughs> the way they does. do, yes. and <laughs> and he. So Bradley's part of this new establishment and this de- democ- democratized American army. They, 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 they're not interested in fancy Southern colonels raising their own regiments, which is what was still happening in the First World War. He wants a sort of democratic army, the best people in the officer corps. He wants to reward initiative. He wants to, you know, treat everyone as an equal, which is how he's been treated by the army because he, he's dirt poor teacher's son, comes in on a scholarship to West Point, and he's in the same class as Eisenhower and a bunch of other people. So Bradley is this very sort of ordinary chap you know and that's why i got him and him and um Patton in the book together because bradley's you know it's the two sides of of america isn't it it's the sort of the Amer- bradley's the american dream chap and then Patton is the sort of gilded youth uh soldier is it simplistic to say that bradley is the future and Patton is the past to some extent well that's a i think had Patton perhaps not been so sort of brilliant at casting a shadow yes but Patton has cast an extremely long shadow and sort of generals in that kind of, you know, cigar chomping, you know, mode. 
Storming uh, Norman Schwartz. Storming, yeah, it's all, yeah, that's all that's all part of your pattern bow wave through American martial culture. Although, you know, as we say on uh, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, if it's after 1945, I'm just not interested. <laughs> well, okay, so Al, on that, so Al, just on that, just coming to an end, it, it's a question that hung over the whole time I was reading the book. Is yes. Any, any lessons for what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, do you think, in the study of the Second World War and the command and that kind of thing? Well, I mean, you could argue that it's flipped, isn't it? It's Ukraine is the Lend-Lease ally rather than the Soviet Union, rather than Russia. Yeah. And the, the, the dyspeptic, um, uh, uh, sclerotic dictatorship is, the, is Russia lashing out unable you know doing things it's unable to follow through because on, it does all- seem I, I mean one of the one of the abiding themes is that you have to make your men happy and this yeah. is what all the generals in your book are, are good at and that's presumably yeah. why they're in the book and that yeah. seems to be where the russians are really badly failing is that their men have you know their morale is shot to pieces and and nobody cares about them yeah but i said you know if you want to look at a society look at its army look at, if you want a reflection of a yeah. society look at its army you know the british army's tiny because we we've told ourselves we don't like fighting anymore it's also incredibly right on generally uh, you know a woman passed a woman passed parachute regiment selection yesterday p company selection a medic which is very unusual because it's extremely physically demanding you have to be very strong and have incredible endurance so it's an amazing thing that that happened yeah that happened yesterday in the british army a thing that 20 years ago i don't think would have been possible is completely unthinkable 30 40 years ago because that's what, where our society's going and, and the army reflects that the russian army seems to reflect a corrupt society that doesn't care about it. the people at the at, at the bottom you know that you can buy your way out of if you're if you're well connected and all and all and all that stuff and that that seems to be i mean i don't you know uh, loath generalized but that seems to be my impression of what russia's like and so the army's the army's a simple reflection of that whereas ukraine and the other thing the, the russians have succeeded in doing is absolutely galvanizing a sense of yeah. what it is to be ukrainian there's nothing like being invaded to do that for people of course yeah. they created the very thing that they were you know that they most dreaded an independent yeah. non-russian ukraine well yeah. i'll thank thanks so much so uh <laughs> your book command uh, and the subtitle, I think, you know, I, I'm sure it's come out through this um, through this episode. How the Allies learned to win the Second World War. I mean, that's the. It's so interesting how you know, <laughs> armies that are not particularly geared up for war, as you were saying, become very geared up for war. So it's it's such a fascinating um, book. I, I suppose that you know the thing is maybe the Russians will you know maybe this is the Russians 1940 where it's all going terribly wrong and they'll figure it out. But I don't know because the, the striking thing is. The striking thing about the Second World War is essentially the open cultures, the Western, the more open cultures win and the most yeah. closed of the cultures loses. And maybe that, maybe that's something to do with it. But it's also a fascinating thing. It's about the inter, something we talk about so much on the rest of history. It's the interplay of the purse of the, of the individual and the kind of the institutional. Yeah. That sort of tension that is yeah. never really resolved. You know, how much do individual characters matter and make a difference? You know, Nelson in our Trafalgar episode or Alexander in the episodes we did about him and how much are things determined by institutions and structures. Talking of which, having <laughs> having plugged Al's book, I'm now being told by Dom, our producer, that Al has to plug We Have Ways. So do you know what we never did? We never talked about the leadership on, on the, in these podcasts, did we? The generalship <laughs> of our producers. Well, I mean, they could. Have you not given them copies of this book, Al? Because, I mean... They've been sent them. Whether they've read them or not is a, a different question. So, I mean... Read and learn. That's all we yeah, should say. They need to keep their troops happy. That's they the do. thing. I mean, so, Dom, Dom, is, <laughs> Dom is now swearing at us uh, because you still... Al, because, Al, you still haven't given the plug. 
So you've got to give the plug. This is your direct order or you'll be shot. Well, I mean, you know, in Normandy, during a morale dip, um, showers and beer were sent to the front to uh, cheer the men up. So maybe that's what they need to do for us. I think they Um, do, yes. uh, On We Have Ways, uh, it's the anniversary of the Battle of El Alamein. The second Battle of Alamein, of course, if you're an aficionado, and uh, James and I have done a week of podcasts about that, running through the running through the setting the scene, and then running through the climactic first great British victory of the Second World War. And we we're also talking to um, John McManus, an American historian, about where the Americans fit into that picture, which is all quite interesting. So we've a week of that, Fantastic. and then we've a, we've a week of we, we've also our Patreon, which similar to your Wangs, we've our, our Patreon, and uh, they call themselves the Independent Company. And we have audiobooks where I, we, I've been reading out of print memoirs and stuff as a side project. And one of the commanders in this book is this fellow, Peter White, who was a lieutenant in the King's Own Scottish Borders at the very end of the war. And his memoir with the jocks of, of his experience of going from Walcheren to, to Hamburg, I'm reading that. And he's the last of your, your commanders in, in, in yeah. command, isn't he? Yeah. 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 So that's up now and that, that'll run till Christmas because it's an enormous book. Wonderful. And Tom, for our listeners, we have coming soon uh, two special episodes about treason Ooh. from the National Archives. That's brilliant. I, that was amazing privilege, wasn't it? We we saw the charge sheet against Anne Boleyn and the really? court records for Charles the First trial. trial. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah. stuff from the Popish plots. Um, Excellent. Lord Haw Haw, uh, bills of attainder from Richard the Third, and all this. Well, yeah, I, that Lord really- Haw wasn't a British citizen, though, was he? No, but he had uh, a British was passport. A he had, he he had, had a passport. passport. He had fraudulently obtained a British passport, and that was what damned him. They'll always get you with the bureaucracy, won't they, in the end? Yeah, they will. <laughs> so we've got that, and then we've got another epic tale coming up the week after that, which is uh, King Alfred's battles against the Vikings. And that, I Ooh. believe, Tom, is also rather like the podcast about Al's book. That's also a tie-in with a, a, an absolutely tip-top, um, spectacularly good book, isn't it? I don't know. Is it? Yes, it is, darling. Your new, your new children's book. I, I can't want you to plug my book. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I'm the, only anyone, here, I'm the yeah. only one here who hasn't plugged the book. So I think I. So I think I think I think we need to end it now. So thanks very much for listening. Pip pip. Thanks for listening to the rest is history. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.